The first reading is in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, and beginning at verse 11. This can be found on page 60 in the Church Bibles. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord your God, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, God of Isaac, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. The second reading comes from the book of John, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, and if you want to follow it, it's on page 1086. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, James, very much for those readings. And uh, we'll be in that second passage, John chapter 18. So do keep that open, if you would. That would be a real help to me. I'm going to pray as we begin. Father God, thank you for these uh, shards of light coming in from the sun outside. And we pray that you'd do the same for us in our minds this morning. Shed light where there's the darkness of misunderstanding or sin or confusion. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, you're tired 
It's been a late night with the rest of the gang. Much has been said and much has been eaten. It's hard to put your finger on it, but there's a, se- a feeling of seriousness and of, I suppose you'd put it as dark anticipation around, but you don't know why exactly. Best perhaps not to dwell on it. Night has fallen. You're walking under a full moon. It's that time of year. You cross a brook. It's the brook of Kidron. It's dry now in the warmer summer months, stones crunching underneath your feet. Your feet still tingling, slightly having been washed so recently. And you can still well remember the absurdity of the Lord Jesus Christ's fingers between your toes as he was the one doing the foot washing. And there it is. Just to your left, yes, you wondered whether you were heading there, the Mount of Olives, just rising visibly in the moonlight uh, behind Jerusalem. You're ascending now, climbing the hill, you're breathless, you thought you were fitter than this, and now you're at that familiar walled garden, a favorite for Jesus and for you. You've been there so many times before, but this time it feels different. You walk in, feels familiar feels like home. There's a light breeze and the leaves just shake a little. And then there's that sound. And to start with, you're, you're not sure whether you're right, but no, there it is again, voices. Voices coming and going on the wind. And there's another sound overlaid over the top now. It's, yeah, it does sound like the chink of metal. Soon one swinging light comes into view, then two swinging lights, then a whole forest of lights fill your vision heartbeat rising dryness in the throat where's Jesus we need to go this is not good well there's Jesus he's walking out of the garden towards the lights no no don't do that well the scene is set for a terrible but a marvelous true historical drama and it's a drama which should which will affect each one of us if we engage with the main protagonist in the person of Jesus Christ. As Tim mentioned earlier, we are uh, taking a break from our series in Revelation. We will return to that later on, as you'll see in the term card. But for now, we're in John's Gospel, and we're dotting around looking at the different titles Jesus gives to himself under the title of the I Ams. He says, I am, I am, I am. That's our series. And they're known as the I Ams for the simple reason that they all begin with those words, I am. The past tense, the present tense of the verb to be. And today we are just looking at the first of those titles, I am he. And to start with, you might think that is a very innocuous, perhaps boring title to look at, the present uh, tense of the verb to be. How insignificant. But actually I can assure you that it will be anything but. Uh, If you're a note taker, I've put the headings on the the, the back of the, the, the service sheet, just three words actually, rebellion, identity, and then humility. So can I invite you, will you come back with me to that walled garden just outside Jerusalem on that mount? First of all, rebellion. John's gospel, like any of the other gospels, is very, very carefully constructed. Each word, each phrase, each sentence, each paragraph is rightly weighted and then framed. Everything is there for a reason, like a masterpiece painting. 
And the first thing I want us to notice in this passage is the description and the distribution of the people as we walk through the passage. To start with, you'll have noticed we have two groups, each with their own leader. Uh, Three times we read of the first group in verses 1 to 2. It it is Jesus with his disciples. And then we find the second group uh, in verse 3. This is Judas and his rather sinister crowd. Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now the commentaries tell me that a detachment or a cohort as it says in the, the original, of soldiers, was anywhere between 600 armed men and 1,000. In other words, it is a very, very significant bunch of soldiers. Now, since it was the Passover, the Romans had probably stationed this cohort near to Jerusalem. They were worried about the Jews and riots and uprisings and so on, and they were fans of kettling, as our police do, and so they wanted high numbers. So here they are, a huge crowd having marched up the hill. They would fill a Boeing 737 seven times over. It is a lot of armed people. Now we could say lots about this initial scene under the heading of rebellion, but suffice it to say this morning that rebellion against Jesus, John shows us here, is popular, is impressive, and is unoriginal. I'm going to say more about that when I've got more time this evening. But there's more, and I just want to focus on this with you this morning. Rebellion against Jesus is what we might call self-blinding, self-blinding. Have a look at verse 4. I think this is very profound. Jesus went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Who is it that you want? Now, all the way through John's gospel, um, we find phrases and words working on multiple levels. So there's a shallow meaning, an initial meaning, and then if you go deeper, there's a deeper, more significant, profound meaning. And here's an example of this. Level one, who is it that you want? Well, the shallow meaning of that question might be this. Which one of us do you want to arrest? It's a logical question. Fair enough, they've made all the effort, these thousand men, to march up the hill. Who do you want to go away with? Level two, at which this question works. Who is it that you want? Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? It's an identity question. We'll think more about that uh, in the second heading. Or how about this, level three, even more profound. Who is it that you want? Whom do you want me to be? Whom do you want me to be? It's a question of wish or of desire. In other words, I know why you've come, verse four, Jesus knows, You're going to arrest me. You're going to crucify me. Since you're going to do those things to me, whom do you want me to be? Whom do you imagine me to be? And their answer is very revealing, is it not? Verse 5, who is it you want? Well, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, please. Thank you very much. And again in verse 7, who is it that you want? The same answer again, Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you very much. And one can understand their answer. If you're going to arrest and execute someone on trumped-up false charges, you really do want them to be a run-of-the-mill standard kind of person, not a person of power or influence. Who is it that you want me to be? Just Jesus of Nazareth, please. 
They want Jesus from a nowhere kind of a place because they want Jesus the nobody kind of a person. You do not want to abuse people of power. In the mid-19th century, the story is told of some young, uh, some youths boarding a bus in the deep south of America and feeling like a, a strong gang together. They saw a hunched up person at the back of the bus and they approach him and they began to have some fun with him and bully him and knock him about a bit and tease him. And as the story is told, this gentleman gets up, straightens himself up, he's rather taller than they first thought, and pushes past them. As he slips off the bus, he slips them his business card. And on it, it says this, Joe Louis, boxer. Boxer. He was the undefeated heavyweight boxing champion of the world for a straight 12 years. He was the very last person one would choose to bully. Imagine that moment of horror for those boys then on that bus as they realized they had picked on the prize fighter of a decade of the world. Imagine if Joe Louis had spun round just before he left that bus and asked them Jesus' question, who did you think I was or whom did you want me to be? Very piercing question, wouldn't it? What do you suppose they would have said in response to him? Oh, we just wanted you to be a normal, run-of-the-mill kind of a guy. We thought you were just Joe from Alabama. We didn't know you were Joe, the heavyweight champion of the world. That is why we picked on you. Please don't hurt us. And so it is with rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. If people knew who he was, they surely wouldn't do it. No, it's not even as simple as that. It is because people don't want to believe who he is that they choose to rebel against him. It is self-blinding. Whom do you want me to be? I want you to be a small, insignificant person in history, only defined by his birthplace. Jesus of Nazareth. Who is it that you want me to be? And so Jesus' question is piercing, maybe for some of us this morning, Who is it that you want? So rebellion, first of all. Second of all, identity. Identity. Jesus loves us far too much to leave us to our fanciful ideas of whom he may or may not be. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response twice is devastatingly beautiful. I'll say that again. It is devastatingly beautiful. I am am he. I am he. Now again, we're back to John's levels of meaning. On one level, there is nothing remarkable about what Jesus says here whatsoever. It is simply an assent to their labeling of him. Are you John Ash, who sent that email to Tim Mullins? (laughs) I am. That is not a remarkable thing to say. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? I am. It's a way of saying yes. But on another level, it is a statement utterly unrivaled in all of human history. Let me explain. Do you know what a proper noun is? I'm sure you do. It's a word which has to be capitalized because it is a word which accurately labels somebody or something. St. Michael's Chester Square, capitalized on the sign outside. John Ash, capitalized, it is my name. You can refer to me that way. 
And in the Bible, I am or I am he is a proper noun. It is a title which Jesus uses to tell us his true identity. And there is no bigger proper noun in the whole of the English lexicon. It's found explicitly, if you're interested, in two books in the Old Testament, Exodus, we had Sheila's reading from there, and then Isaiah. In Exodus 3, Moses asks for God's name, and in so doing, asks for God's identity, really. And the reply, let me quote, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The Hebrew is pronounced something like Yahweh. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but that is how it's pronounced. And it's derived from the original verb to be or to exist or to cause to become. And when transliterated into our Latin uh, letters, it's written Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. It is a name so holy that conservative Jews would not say it out loud. They would not even say it in their own heads to themselves. It is God's chosen proper noun. No wonder then a thousand plus armed men draw back and fall to the ground when Jesus uses this title, I am he. In them it was an instinct for self-protection and right worship. It was the ultimate knee-jerk response that they exhibited. It is the only right thing these soldiers do in the whole episode in John chapter 18. They want Jesus to be only Jesus of Nazareth, Louis of Alabama, and yet he is more than that. He is I am. He is I am he. And in that moment, this man standing outside a pleasure garden on the hillside just outside Jerusalem is identifying himself completely with the God who was there in the burning bush speaking to Moses. He's saying, that was me. He's identifying himself completely with the God who wrought devastation on the superpower of the day with the plagues. He's saying, that was me. Identifying himself completely with the God who brought a whole people group out of the superpower of that day and split the Red Sea so they could walk through it. He says, that that was me. I am I am he. Who do you want me to be? Let me tell you who I am. I am the undisputed heavyweight champion of heaven. That is who I am. Now let's just chew on that for a moment or two. I am he. It's a very profound title. Firstly, in the headings, you'll see I've put down, it is a self-defining title. Now, I may lose some people here. That's fine. I think this is wonderful. So we're going to look into depth. The title is self-referential for the purposes of definition. I am who I am. It is self-referential. So God has no need to go out of himself to define who he is. Let's take a silly example. The Queen of England, wonderful lady, she has to refer to concepts outside of herself to define herself. We have to have a concept of England and a concept of royalty, the Queen of England. She's not self-defining. Or a lawyer, maybe there's a lawyer here. You have to go outside yourself to the concept of law so I understand who you are. You're not self-defining. You rely on things outside yourself to define yourself. But not so with God, with Yahweh. 
He needs no one and nothing else to know who he is. I am who I am. Let's take an example just to root it. Let's take the example of God is love, well-known verse from the Bible. Now there, God is not relying on a concept independent of him, love, to define who he is. For that would be to put the concept of love on the throne and not him. No, the statement God is love means that God defines what love is and what love isn't. Love is a derivative of him. He is not a derivative of love. So, for example, when some people say, how can you say the God of the Bible is a God of love? I don't think he fits with my picture of love. We could answer in many possible ways, but the fundamental answer would go something like this. If the God of the Bible and your concept of love clash, then your concept of love needs recalibrating. God defines what love is. I am who I am, self-defining. Secondly, it's self-sufficient as a title. This is what theologians call the aseity of God from the Latin ase, from self. It means that God needs no one and nothing else to be who he is. And this is important. Of course, we're different again. Our identities rely on other people for us to be who we are. Maybe there's a father here. I'm sure there are many fathers here. You need to have a child in order to maintain your identity as a father. Or maybe there's an athlete here. We might say an athlete needs to maintain fitness in order to maintain the identity of an athlete. Or maybe there's an employee here. I hope there are many. You need to maintain a job in order to maintain your identity of an employee. But God is different. God is very different. He only needs himself to be who he is. It adds extra irony to his question, doesn't it, when you realize that I am who I am is asking who do you want me to be? Now, let's just try and root this again in the God is love example. I think this is wonderful. Have you ever wondered, how could God be love before he created the world? Because surely to be love, you need somebody to love. Love requires two parties. I need to love somebody. How can you be love on your own? And so the thinking person might ask that question. How could he be love before the creation of the world? Surely that's impossible. But the wonderful, the unique answer that the Bible gives is this, the Trinity. God is three in one and one in three. And so he's always been love. The Father loving the Son, the Spirit loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, and so on it goes around. He has always been love. He's the only God who can be love on his own. How? Because he can love himself selflessly. I am who I am. I do not depend on anyone or anything other than myself to be who I am. That is wonderful. And so it was that the man standing before those soldiers said, I am the self-defining one. I am the self-sufficient one standing outside that garden in Jerusalem. No wonder they fell to their knees in instinctive worship and self-protection. Friends, I just want to say we have a very big God. We have a very big God. Third little heading, briefly, humility. Humility. Jesus' humility, I want to say, oozes out of every pore in this passage. And I have found his humility to be eye-watering to behold. We could look at numerous aspects of it. Let me list some. 
We could look at the way in which Jesus makes every first move in this passage. He is never reactive, even when there are seven Boeing 737s worth of soldiers there. He makes the first move, always. He's in charge. He knew what was going to happen. He invited it upon himself, verse 4. We could look at the way in which, on one level, his I am admits to being little old Jesus of Nazareth. He's happy to have that title. Isn't that eye-watering humility for the I am who I am? We could look at the way in which he surrenders at the very point of the soldier's surrender to him. He's utterly sovereign as he surrenders. We could look at his rebuke of Peter's small-minded efforts to help him. We could look at his care for this poor Arabic, we think, slave, Malchus. No one would have cared about his ear being cut off. He was a nobody, and yet we know his name And we know Jesus healed him from another gospel. Humility. But I want to close in on verse 11, if if I may. Put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, some of what we've looked at over the past few minutes in the sermon has been rightly, and I want to say wonderfully deep and complex. I don't apologize for that. But this is wonderfully simple. And if it has been the case that some things have gone over your head, I want to say, walk away with this. Because this is wonderfully simple. Jesus, the self-defining, self-sufficient, awesome God, Jesus Christ, he died for you. That is what he's saying when he's saying, I must drink the cup. It is the cup of God the Father's wrath. God's wrath at your sin and my sin, our rebellion against him. And he's saying, I'm going to take the punishment that that deserves so that you don't have to, so that John doesn't have to. Isn't that wonderful? That is so wonderfully simple, so wonderfully humble, I want to say. I don't think there's anything more humble than that. The I am becoming an extinct I was in his human nature for three days so that we could live in the present tense continuous into eternity. I think that is a wonderful thing. It's a rebellion, identity, humility. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, please, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. Let's pray. I'm going to quote from Isaiah 43. Understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled before you this morning. We repent of our rebellion against you, and we marvel that you, the great I Am, would be our Savior, that you would die for us. We love you for it, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.